0: Welcome back to the Medieval Irish History Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Neave Wycherley, and I'm a medieval historian in the Department of Early Irish Maynooth University. Thank you to all my colleagues here for their support and to the Irish Research Council for funding my research into power and patronage in Medieval Ireland. My production assistant is Tiago Veloso silva Hi, Tiago. Uh, please email us at medievalirishhistory@gmail.com at with any questions or comments. And you can follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at Early Irish Pod. Please do rate, review, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts because that will help us reach more listeners. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to a very interesting man about a very boring topic. I just... <laughs> It's the Monastic Towns Debate with Dr. Michael Potterton. Welcome, Michael.
1: Thanks very much, Neve, And thanks a million, Neve and Tiago, for the invitation to join you. I've loved listening to the previous episodes, yeah. uh, so I hope in some way that I can live up to this. But uh, it's of a fantastic course. series. Congratulations and Well, thanks for inviting me to be part of it.
0: Thank you. We're so thrilled to have you on. Um, So Dr. Potterton, Michael, is a uh, lecturer here in the Department of History in Maynooth University. He is the expert on settlement in medieval Ireland, both rural and urban, as he cringes. Oh, not not happy with that label. Uh, Definitely the man to talk to about medieval towns. Most notably, you're the expert on trim in County Meath, but you've also published on like too many other towns and settlements to mention now but some of them might come up in the course of our discussion. So today then Michael if you're game I'd like to yep. broadly focus on two kind of general things right that okay. kind of interlock and something and um, but we can see where the conversation takes us. So one is kind of exploring what urban life if any you know what that was like in medieval Ireland broadly Mm -hmm. speaking Mm -hmm. and the other is exploring the nature of scholarly debate in the context of this big one the monastic towns debate which I love that debate because we can't decide what monastic means right or what even a town was Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's really hard to agree about whether they existed at all so do you want to start at the beginning with kind of the origins of kind of early nucleated settlements or do you want to jump to the start of the origins of this debate on monastic towns?
1: Wow. Well, gosh, where do we start with that? Well, maybe I suppose with the origins insofar as we know of nucleated settlement in in Ireland and then maybe we can touch on the debate specifically about monastic towns and the role of the church in the development of these urban spaces. Um, So going back to the very beginning, I suppose, if you go back 12,500, 13,000 years wow, okay. uh, when we have evidence for the first people living in Ireland in the, in the Paleolithic. They certainly uh, were living in caves and they were hunter-gatherer people. Uh, um, they weren't uh, farmers. They didn't, uh, agriculture hadn't been developed at that stage and they certainly didn't live in towns. There's no evidence for any form of um, nucleated settlement and certainly nothing approaching what we would define as urban. And we move quickly then into the Mesolithic or the Middle Stone Age and there are people living in extended families, uh, huts gathered together on lake shores. people involved in industrial manufacture of stone tools. But again, these are still hunter, gatherer, fishers, no agriculture and still no towns. The Neolithic then, the new Stone Age, uh, very important changes take place. The development of agriculture, the first pottery in Ireland, a number of important cultural and societal changes. Still no towns, though. But
0: do we have towns... Elsewhere in the world? Because now I'm making you an expert on the, you know, uh, globally. Yes. But do we have other kind of comparatively?
1: Yeah. Do you know? other I, You probably know this, but that's a brilliant question. <laughs> because, uh, and a lot of people don't realise this, but I'm not surprised that you do. Um, it really is the development of agriculture and the ability to produce food as and when required in large amounts that facilitates and um, accelerates the development of towns. So it is developments in the field, as it were, uh, in rural uh, landscapes, that encourage and facilitate marketplaces for the products of those fields to be shared and exported and traded. Um, that actually stimulates the growth in towns, not in Ireland but elsewhere. Okay. And the first towns in the world develop in places that agriculture has taken leaps forward wow. in terms okay. of technology and in terms of production.
0: Okay, great. Sorry, I jumped in there. It's like so. At the, at the so, what kind of rough dates were you? talking about there so, so
1: in in an Irish context um, the um, Mesolithic to Neolithic transition is about 4000 BC about 6000 years ago and the Mesolithic lasts for about uh, 3, 3.5 thousand years
0: and is that years. when is that- Sorry, that I'll keep it. I'm just joking. Okay. Is, is that then our Newgrange, are the big passage tombs? Are they getting yeah. to around? Yeah, those those
1: passage tombs at in the Boyne Valley at Newgrange and in, in other centers around the country are part of the Neolithic, this Neolithic population. Okay. We know far more about the dead in Neolithic Ireland okay. than we know about the living. Yeah. Um. But we can not So they are
0: leaving these monuments in the landscape. Absolutely. But they're not living in monuments. anything akin to what approaching what we understand
1: right I mean they're living in relatively small rectangular houses probably again extended families with uh, their livestock nearby with fields in which they're growing uh, food for themselves Uh, but still not towns okay And then we come to the end of the Stone Age. We've got the advent of bronze working, uh, the Bronze Age, as you might expect. And, of course, they continue to work in stone and in bone and wood and antler. Uh, But bronze is a very important uh, material for making tools and weapons and so on. And this facilitates uh, the clearance of trees on a larger scale, more land prepared for agriculture. Um, It facilitates a growth in population. And you might think, ah, growth in population, that's something we need for towns, isn't it? Absolutely, but... (laughs) We still don't really have, at least for most of the Bronze Age, any evidence for what you would call seriously nucleated settlement, anything approaching towns. But coming towards the end of the Bronze Age, there are changes happening. We can see in the archaeological evidence uh, a number of important changes that are developing, and people who are interested in the development of urban spaces in Ireland will look to this period as the first sort of hints at larger groups of people, perhaps beyond an extent family living together in defended settlements with a lot of craft working activity taking place in addition to the agricultural activity.
0: You, did you see that kind of stuff on or yeah, is that no, later?
1: Yeah it's a little bit later. No we do have Bronze Age, there were Bronze Age houses at that site at Munyaloc in, in in County Meath. Um, it was best known I suppose for its uh, early medieval Cranog, uh, the lake settlement site but there was evidence for the for Bronze Age houses there but I don't think again we, had, we could in any way classify that as being urban. But those those changes include evidence for climatic deterioration. And of course given some of the big conversations that we're involved in at the moment globally Mm -hmm. in terms of climate change this becomes significant on a number of levels Um, but there clearly clearly is climatic deterioration at the end of the Bronze Age in Ireland people are creating defensive hill forts um, they're involved in the manufacture of weapons at an industrial scale um, and we have evidence for the deposition of hordes of objects of valuable objects often uh, whether these were lost or deposited deliberately and if they were deposited deliberately was it for the intention of recovery afterwards or were they votive offerings to the gods of watery places or for safe passage across the bogs or what was it we don't really understand but it is part of a bigger picture which is you know I I think you're probably wondering where is it going in terms of the development of towns well these are all we're we're getting there don't (laughs) worry we're going to get out of archaeology pretty quickly (laughs) you'll be safe soon we'll be among friends again soon but um, Get me but but if but if I if I can just finish this little yeah. bit of a tangent um, our late colleague John Bradley always used to say a tangent is a straight line so you should follow it to its <laughs> natural conclusion so my little tangent here is and I'm sure Tiago will be able to cut all of this out afterwards <laughs> uh, get no, rid of all the archaeology but very important um, context clearly there are changes happening as the Iron Age uh, emerges yeah. in in Ireland and of course the, the the name indicates the importance of iron as a material that's used um, in the manufacturing of, of weapons and tools and all sorts of other utensils. Um, but there's the first time ever in, in Ireland where we have evidence for a population decrease. There's reafforestation of some of those lands okay. that had been cleared by early Bronze Age people. There is evidence uh, partly to do with deteriorating climate, uh, inundation of this sites. is this around
0: the second and third centuries? Y- or we're, when is yeah, or?
1: we're sort of, we're, we're sort of uh, maybe third, fourth centuries okay. BC for a couple of hundred years. Okay. It's been described as a period of cultural stagnation and um, and okay. given that we've just come out of the Bronze Age, which is a remarkable period in, in Ireland in terms of right. craftsmanship and artistry, if you go into the National Museum, lots of the shiny things in the museum in Kildare Street in Dublin date to yes. the Bronze Age. Yeah, well, you gold. know, it was a yeah, golden gold. age, yeah. literally yeah. And, yeah. And, and figuratively a golden age. And then, of course, as you well know, when yeah. we come into the early medieval period, get a jump. we get a jump and yeah. we get another golden era. Mm. I mean, if there was ever a league table for, yeah. you know, uh, globally for 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 craft and and for uh, artistic achievement Ireland would be close to the top probably on two occasions in our past
0: but there's so are we talking I'm trying to do maths in my head are we talking there's like maybe 900 900, like 800 years between those yeah and that 800 years period
1: that characterised primarily by the Iron Age is a period when, as I say, with climatic deterioration, we have what we refer to as the enigmatic Irish Iron Age. Barry Raftery Mm. famously in the 1990s wrote his book Pagan Celtic Ireland Mm. and the enigmatic Irish Iron Age. And then we have researchers in Cork and UCD looking for the invisible people of Mm. Iron Age Ireland. And those names I think are very telling um, Mm. because we, in, in some respects we know more about the Bronze Age, the earlier period, than we do about the Iron Age. And we do have evidence for the first glimpses, the the green shoots, if you like, of nucleated settlement um, in the late Iron Age, um, perhaps stimulated by some of the other developments that had taken place. Um, When we start to emerge then from prehistory, the end of the Iron Age, into the early medieval period, where we start to get reference to certain places in the earliest texts, Um, we now can add a very important layer of evidence To what had previously only been archaeology, of course, prehistory by its very name is before history, before the written period, the the period where we have written evidence. So we're emerging now with a little bit of knowledge uh, from the late Iron Age. uh, And at this
0: time, again, just for wider context, you have the Roman Empire... The so-called decline, perhaps that's a, a debate for another day mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire, let's say, in what we're calling the late Iron Age in mm-hmm. Ireland. So you have yep. you have big cities.
1: Yes, in, yes, certainly for the time. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah, enormous. Constantinople. Yes. yes. Yep. Big cities. Right.
0: Um, And we have n- nothing even approximating anything in their wildest dreams. No. In Ireland at the same time. No. So it's overwhelmingly rural yes. and agricultural. Yes. But people are starting to live in right. closer proximity to each other or what's the story?
1: Yeah, that's true. And then we start to get population increase as well. And that's something that you okay. need. And we can maybe come back to a discussion of, of definition. You know, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, what is monastic? What is a town? Yeah, we we will, need to we'll it, yeah. try and uh, come close to some sort of definition to be able to discuss it. But uh, and and even closer to home, I and mean, you mentioned Constantinople and, and Rome, but closer to home, a lot of the Iron Age uh, hill forts in other places, say, in, in northern France or, even in Britain, developed into into oppida, into these okay. um, towns, particularly okay. under the Romans. And while Ireland never became part of the Roman Empire, I think there was a greater influence uh, from the Roman Empire on late Iron Age, early medieval Ireland, than has generally been uh, realized or appreciated. And perhaps even the other way as well, in terms of an influence from Ireland uh, in towards mm. the northwestern part of the Roman Empire. But as you say, that's probably a question for another day. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it's early medieval Ireland. Right?
1: Yay, finally. It's, yay, phew.
0: Oh, okay, I can okay stop you can spending. start recording now, Tiago. Okay, <laughs> we have written sources. Yes. Whichever, though, because we're mostly going to rely on material evidence anyway for, for talking about towns. and Brilliant, I'd love therary. to hear that. Good, <laughs> yeah. Um, but do we have anything akin to it, we're going to we'll get into definitions in a minute. But what, what we're but now picturing in our heads as like a small town, right? Or even a big village or whatever. Is there anything in in the time, even if we don't say the time of Bridget and Patrick, but even if we say a couple hundred years later, if we say like the late 600s, let's say if we fast forward to the year 700.
1: OK. Right? Yeah.
0: Is there anything which I could argue was a town at that point?
1: I mean, you could you could try to argue that, and some people have tried to argue that. I think it, it would be very difficult to, to come up with a compelling argument. The evidence okay. simply isn't there. So how are people living? Right. Well, the vast majority of people are living in uh, a rural landscape okay. uh, dependent on agriculture okay. for subsistence. And they're either involved directly in agriculture or indirectly in agriculture. And while some people are probably living in nucleated settlements, that is to say a number of houses close to each other. um, And obviously communication, you may have two or three generations of the same family, perhaps even another family. Um, I don't think even the most determined of the. Um, the people who believe in, in in monastic towns and believe in early medieval towns in Ireland would classify those as okay. towns. But we are moving that direction. Okay, so
0: let's let us let us define a town then.
1: Ah, that's not. Let's let's okay. go okay. in there. Easy. Let's, let's, go, start. There. let's Easy go there. Easy questions. Um, well, a, a town, if you look up uh, a dictionary now, simply will be defined as a settlement that is larger than a village and smaller than a city. Oh, it's very super helpful.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, like if I go certain places, I'm getting like if you're in Ireland and you accidentally refer to where someone oh, yes. is from.
1: You're talking about Kilkenny, are you? Is
0: no, well, Kilkenny's another thing. It's a city, Yes, we've Kilkenny established Kilkenny as a city. Only
1: people from Kilkenny City are allowed to call it town.
0: Are they, Yeah, you're because outside. you're going into town oh, or you're oh, in town. Or oh whatever. yeah, they yeah, of course. say that, you, you and I can't but say that. But there are some Kilkenny places where you you can't, you'd be very offensive if you refer to somewhere as a village and they're like, it's a town. Yes and obviously there's the whole tidy towns competition and there's right. very clear categories about yes. what's the difference between a village and a town and a large town yes. and all the different categories yes. um so this is not something that it can be clearly defined in 2023 one right. person's town is another person's village Absolutely. you know yeah. right yes so that's i yes. think step one isn't it like Absolutely. we we don't even yeah right, right. so so but, it, but we, is it defined is it defined or do we kind of generally define kind of urban life or an urban area as somewhere that has commercial activity so where you have people who aren't relying on agriculture so you can live in a town and not have to tend to the land to create food to produce food that you can be living in a town and you can either be working for someone else or you can be a you know a tradesman or a craftsperson or you can be you know not dependent on the land essentially is that how we define okay.
1: well i think that's probably got to be part of the definition okay yeah that there's a certain um specialization that uh, yeah. people members of a community have different specializations and they contribute to that community using their expertise and experience whether yeah. it's you know making goods from leather yeah. or or bone or um or or stone or whatever it yeah. might be that um not necessarily now 2023, but that's how it might have been, say, in the in the early Middle Ages, that people um, were still reliant on agriculture. After all, where did all the food come from? Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes part of the problem in terms of defining these things is creating or thinking of it in binary terms that there is either okay. urban or rural, right? And you're one yeah. or the other. Okay. And clearly, we know that in in 2023 in Ireland that that's not the case. Um, yeah. Some people would see Dublin as the only urban area in the country, and everybody ah, outside Dublin no. being rural well, this or is, a culture
0: This is the best thing about where we're at at the moment because we're still only—I've said <laughs> in the year 700. Dublin barely even exists. Arguably. I mean, we do have mansions to Auckland and then the Dublin and everything. But really, I mean, there was probably a church or something there. Mm -hmm. Dublin doesn't exist. This is the pre-Dublin world. Yes. Which, whoa, mind blown. Can anybody imagine it? All roads now lead to Dublin and the whole country is, absolutely um, run out of Dublin. Uh, But... Nobody is arguing that, what, all Cork and Limerick and Galway and Waterford, what, aren't cities? No, yeah, I that, think isn't? I think
1: some people in in what? Dublin would be saying that anything outside the M50 Gee, is culture land, and that's it. And that okay. that's actually you, you know you've hit on another thing there. That's part of the issue. So one of the issues is is um, is, is definition in terms of what's a town and what's countryside. But if you think about it, you, you know you mentioned Dublin, and um, one of the biggest industries in Dublin, if you like, one of the um, The the best-known activities in Dublin is Guinness Brewery. Mm. Um, Nobody would claim that that's a rural industry, and yet it's where it is because it needs the water from the Liffey Mm. and the water comes from the countryside, the hinterland of the city. And what do they make? They make beer out of what? Well, out of the grain from the countryside. It's all the goods from the countryside that are brought to that one place. Mm. Of course, they're centralized. They're centralized in places that are or have become urban because of that very reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of our towns, certainly all of our medieval towns, were on uh, rivers or at least streams or on the coast because these places brought people and goods in from outside, including from overseas, because these uh, rivers um, also uh, drove mill wheels. Uh, and that was one of the key industries of these places. And where what were they grinding at the mills? Grain. Where did it come from? The countryside. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there was some sort of very clear division between what was rural and what was urban now, or at any time in the past, is not quite idiotic, but a little bit crazy. Okay. So we're looking at a we're looking at at a, 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 a word that's used a lot now in other areas, but we're looking at a spectrum of settlement types. Yeah. From one person living alone uh, right up to the largest congregation of people in but, a, any given place. But
0: even if nobody is living there because that's a real hot topic in 2023 where people aren't living in the towns and villages mm-hmm. in Ireland. you right. know? good, yeah, But yeah. you go to town to go to the shops. Yes. You go to the town to, yes. you know, avail of certain services yes. that you can't get right where you're living. Yes. So you go there. Yes. Um. Obviously, let's. It would be easier if this was twenty-five years ago, like before online shopping and stuff, where you can get everything delivered to your house. But anyway, in the Middle Ages, are there towns that you can, even if people aren't living there, that you can go to to buy stuff and Mm. avail of
1: absolutely places like this evolved to supply goods, to supply ultimately education, healthcare, entertainment. Yeah. Um, to be a focal point for administration and government. Yeah, yeah. That's where you go to have things registered or in terms of deeds for property, not just in recent times. That's been this has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. And those are places that represent not just the people who dwell within them, but also the people in the countryside, too. And in return, You and I and people coming from the countryside into those places, supply those places with food and fuel and raw materials and importantly, labor. Yeah. Um, So there is this what you might call a symbiotic relationship between town and country, which also serves to remind us that. The, the the division between the two might be very obvious if you have a wall, for instance, around your town and a very distinct division and Is that something
0: that's necessary for us to define a town?
1: Uh, it might be included as part of the definition. I mean, I think you mentioned specialisation of craft and of activities mm. as part of it. Um, population of some form. I mean, I know you said some mm. people don't live in the towns, mm. but I think a town has to be associated with human settlement. I think yeah. that has to be a sort of baseline yeah. that we can work from. Uh, does it have to it could be 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 yeah. people. I mean, you know, we could come up with a definition that way too. And then how would you know? Yeah. And then um, religion, is that imp- an important part of it? In an Irish context, given a discussion about monastic well, towns, you know, is religion necessary? I, I don't mean, gosh, is, re- is religion necessary. I mean, yeah. in terms of our definition, church. is the presence of a church important?
0: So then, if I, if I jumping all over the place a bit here, everything that you've just described there. I'm on board that sounds like a town that sounds great where comes to mind so straight away when you're talking I'm like okay so then Dublin in the year 900 mm-hmm. definitely by 1014 by mm-hmm. the Battle of Clontarf and everything mm-hmm. Dublin is, is doing all of those things mm-hmm. Dublin is providing all those things it's very definitely a town by how we understand a town yeah right yes are we happy with uh, that
1: well we no. you and I probably are just about uh, Dublin year 10, 14 happy. are some people yeah.
0: not happy oh. with Dublin no 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 so when so okay right yeah. okay brilliant well let's get into it then because I what would be so then Trim right uh, Who, yes. where you're your Trim yeah yeah on the banks the of man the from trim. Um, Trim are we comfortable with Trim then in the in the 1200 no 1250 when are we happy with oh, yeah. that's definitely a town well if if it we forward easier in the years. later
1: medieval period because you have charters and you have oh, agree with God, it or not bring in but you've got a legal document uh, you know right. agree with it or not okay. but that gives a status to a particular place and the people who uh, live that's there that's
0: not necessary though
1: to right yeah but it's in a way it's an, in terms of a definition it's easy we mentioned okay Klikkeni. it means it's straightforward in is in a charter from 1609 that makes it a city therefore it's a city oh, okay you okay. know um, but in the middle ages after okay. 1609 it wasn't necessarily a city it was okay. a town um, okay, Trim so is a town from the charter that uh, was issued by Hugh de Lacey in the 1170s okay so that's um, easy that make, to, yeah, yeah in a way okay. that makes it even if it didn't have some of the other things it's legal definition there but I we, we mean obviously okay, so something could be discussed
0: okay so let's go back again then why um, <laughs> why would some people say that Dublin in so what we might in our head know is Viking Dublin and if anybody has been to, has been to Dublinia yeah, and all the different Viking splash tours and everything Dublin that it's you know we have this image that it's Viking Dublin I would say that it's Hiberno-Norse Dublin yeah, maybe it's yeah, its own yeah, kind of kingdom of Dublin century, which yeah, yeah by yeah. then it's developed into a yeah. kind of its own thing yeah. it doesn't have huge amount of land or territory or anything yeah. but it's a kingdom that's next to you know the kingdom of Leinster and Ossery and you know you know interacting with all kind of different um, kind of provinces and mm-hmm. kingdoms that it's kind of within and adjacent to and um, you're, some people say that Dublin at that stage isn't a town.
1: Well, n- I mean, Dublin is the, m- the best candidate in yeah. the 11th century. So why uh, why are we not counting it as a town? No, I think we are. I think you okay. and I probably would both yeah. uh, both consider Dublin in the 11th century as a town. Yeah. Um, but there are those. And I think maybe because the debate became a little bit polarised, um, who maybe bite their lip a bit and say, well, no, Dublin doesn't fulfill. It might fulfill some of the criteria, mm. but not all of them. Um, but I think certainly by the end of the 11th century, I mean, you know, in the early 11th century, there's, there's a mint. It's minting its own yeah. coins. Uh, it's enclosed. There's an, an earthen By the bank end of the 10th ditch. century,
0: they're minting. Yeah, Citric, exactly. silkenbeard. And that's yeah. right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, they're, you know, they're minting coins. And these, yeah. that's a monetized economy, at least for some of the inhabitants. Yeah. So those are very important things. Um, so, yeah, that's, it's a moot point. You yeah. no, but but that's where that's when we get to it—the yeah. beginning of the 11th okay. century, really—and Dublin as the largest by then, the largest settlement in the country, and it has for a thousand years been the most, the largest, and the most important settlement yeah. in Ireland.
0: Um, but we were all taught in primary school that the uh, Vikings it must be true. Then. No, yeah, the Vikings introduced towns. Yeah. And that's so you the know, Vikings that's, introduced Dublin, Waterford, Limerick, Cork. It's a bit Kermit, of a soundbite, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you know,
1: there's there's a lot to be said for that. I, I think it's not as it's not as straightforward as that. The Vikings had an important role in the development of towns in Ireland in a number of ways. Yeah. Firstly, they brought with them um, the concept of a certain type of town because they were traders and raiders, of course, mm. and they were international traders mm. and they needed focal points for these markets to mm. operate properly and smoothly. Um, but they didn't come into Greenfield sites in, in Dublin and Waterford and the other places you mentioned. There were already people living there. There mm. were already people trading and raiding. Uh, and there were church sites at a number of these places in the 10th century, the early 10th century, when uh, the Vikings established towns. Uh, obviously, they'd been there through the late 8th, 9th centuries, but I don't think anybody's arguing that those places were towns, the overwintering mm. stations, the Longfort. Um, they had certain urban attributes, perhaps. But in the early 10th century when Dublin is refounded Waterford Wexford Limerick and Cork in the nine teens and the nine early nine twenties you have a very important stage of development Um, the Vikings expand these places physically on the ground and they expand their international contacts they bring in influences from overseas new raw materials new artifactual evidence crops up on archaeological excavations and you suddenly have another layer of um urban characteristics at that stage and the other thing importantly that the Vikings do is they stimulate urban growth elsewhere because firstly yes of course they're involved in pillaging and plundering and attacking, and people yeah. need to increase their defenses. And as we've mentioned, defenses and walls and banks mm. and ditches are maybe part of our definition of what is a town. But they also trade with these people, and that's yeah. a mutually beneficial activity. People are, these trades are, and, and sale of goods are taxed. Um, it's bringing wealth into these places. The churches, in particular, are looking for patrons and, and wealth and ways yeah. to accumulate wealth. And so the Vikings actually stimulate the development of urban spaces outside those Viking towns and that also ties into our monastic town debate
0: Okay so let's go so we've established that some people don't won't even accept that, that what the Vikings introduced was towns anyway and what you've just very clearly showed us is that they weren't the Vikings when they arrived you know they didn't land in greenfield sites and mm. you know there wasn't they didn't just mm. it was a you know people just like living a nomadic lifestyle wandering around the desert and Mm-mm. they just like started to like build um, shops and stuff Um so there's two things. So there's nothing clear. So not only did they not introduce towns, but what they introduced aren't even towns. No, no, <laughs> so, no, 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 no. But so there's 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 one thing I want to kind of just kind of say there. Uh, just a, just a quick soundbite because you had phrased it very well and I, I think maybe you were quoting you phrased it very well to me before um, I think you were quoting Graham Campbell or someone um, but just this really interesting and it's just a kind of a, a one-liner I want to get out of the way about how we've too long we were looking at and I've done it there now again today um, looking at developments in Irish medieval history from the perspective of what people from the outside the influence that they had and it was mentioned in our episode with Professor Claire Downham in relation to Vikings as well about how defining you know Ireland in relation to the Roman Empire you know and Ireland in relation to the Vikings and then the Anglo-Normans and we're saying that the Anglo-Normans definitely were giving town charters um, to places like Trim um, and that we need to stop doing that because you know, the people on the ground in Ireland were continuing to live their lives and didn't see oh now now mm-hmm. I'm in the Viking Age yeah. and now I'm in the Anglo English times um, so you had a really nice way of phrasing that what was it, was it were you quoting Graham Campbell the um, exogenous yeah, that's couple right. of big words in there yeah I think <laughs> this
1: comes down to independent innovation on the one hand or exogenous imposition i.e. the idea that something is homegrown and it's uh, an innovation among the local people um, Aboriginal, or is it something that's been brought in by people from the outside? And clearly that whole concept of things either having to be developed uh, innately at home by the natives or being brought in uh, is um, can be very divisive. And that has tied into the debate as well. This is tied into this discussion about monastic towns because there was a sort of an idea. And you've got to remember that part of this debate happens in the years soon after Ireland had had become a republic. Uh, The republic had become a republic, if you like. Mm. Um, And uh, it was perhaps not mature enough in some respects uh, to... uh, allow for or understand or perhaps embrace some foreign Mm. aspects to our past. Mm. Um, And I think that's understandable. We see it in all sorts of walks of walks of life. Um, But now that uh, we're maturing and sort of standing alone as our as a nation in many respects, uh, the debate has also matured because we can admit the uh, significant role of outside parties combined with uh, innovation at home. Mm. Uh, in terms of rural, uh, rural, urban development, and lots of other things mm. as well. So there's you, you, because because this is often tied up with tropes associated with colonialism. It was understandably particularly difficult f- for for us in Ireland to have that conversation, because the idea was, oh, well, the Irish, uh, you know, in the past were uncivilized. And of course, the, w- the name, the mm. word civilized is all about cities and towns. Mm. People were citizens. Mm. Sophisticated,
0: the whole vo- urban. Urbane. living. Yeah, yes. Yeah. You
1: know, uh, yeah. I've come in here this where morning you with my coffee time. where I'm, yeah. you know, urbane and sophisticated, mm. whereas people who are not living in towns are well, the, the French word is paysan, which gives us peasant. And that's clearly a derogatory term, whereas its origin mm. is simply somebody who lives in the countryside. Mm. But we have developed it in because it was the people in the towns who made the rules literally made the laws, mm. made yeah. the rules uh, set the fashions, set the trends as mm. you know, they probably still do. Mm. And they looked down on those who lived in the countryside because they were often people who were not didn't have access to education. They didn't mm. travel as much. They didn't hadn't broadened their horizons. And so it was quite easy to create this idea among Colonists or potential colonists or invaders. That look, we're doing these people a favor. They don't even have towns in Ireland. You know, they're <laughs> they backwards. They can't govern themselves. They can't govern themselves. They yeah. speak in ways we can't even understand. We'll be doing them a favor mm. by introducing civilization, and of course, so that meant towns as well. <laughs> so there was that was all tied up in it. And then there seemed to be in the early years of the debate this idea that the admission of an important role played by the Vikings. And particularly the English, mm. sometimes called the Anglo-Normans mm. by archaeologists like me uh, and other people, was somehow an admission of, of inadequacy or failure on our part, on mm. our part to do something that, uh, well, we probably weren't able to do.
0: And all of those binaries are so unhelpful. Right. Because, yeah, 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 okay. absolutely. Yeah. And, and, they and as, as Tiago would say, we have to decolonize the past. He's yeah, <laughs> like yeah, always like,
1: Well, you know, he's, he's right. And, and in fact, yeah. you know, much of this is, is amusing now at a distance, but also it's significant. And I think it becomes increasingly significant in, you know, given a lot of the discussions that are taking place uh, in Ireland and elsewhere at the moment, because an understanding of this coming together of cultures and language and religions um, in Ireland is something that has happened for over a thousand years and happened very successfully, not without its difficulties and without its challenges. And there's no reason that that can't continue. But it will continue successfully if we understand and we dig into some of these things in the past. Not pretend they didn't happen, not immediately blame somebody or try to apportion blame uh, to one or other party, but actually understand what happened and say, yeah, well, look, we can learn from that. That worked well or that didn't work
0: well. Okay, so this kind of cosmopolitan nature, you know, you've kind of mentioning, and you mentioned the the kind of the different golden ages in Ireland and the artifacts in the National Museum and everything. And my wheelhouse is, <laughs> you know, the early church and, yes, yeah. all the amazing things that were produced, and you know, the Book of Kells and Lendalock and Clonmacnoise mm-hmm. and uh, all the beautiful artifacts and metalwork and illuminated manuscripts and everything are they not evidence of some kind of sophisticated urban culture at all? Did we have, you know, can we consider any of those churches and we'll get into how we define a a monastery maybe in a second because I have my own thoughts. Um, Good. But are we considering, you know, any of these churches or monasteries as something akin to a town?
1: Well, that's certainly an important part of of the discussion. Places like Clonmacnoise, Kildare, Armagh are, you know, top of the list, whether they make it over the line in terms of um, ticking boxes to be urban by, say, the year 1000 or 1100. Well, that's where the debate lies, because some would agree, yes, there's evidence for enclosure. Yes, there's evidence for a church. There's evidence for other activities such as craft working, metal working industry. Some of these places have turned up archaeological evidence for streets curbs laneways right Um,
0: so it's all good then what what boxes aren't they ticking
1: yeah so they're not necessarily ticking the box that distances them from rural activities and this is where you know I'm I think I'm with you on on most of this, Neve. You know, in terms of,
0: I actually don't think I have a fully formed yeah. <laughs> opinion on any of it. No, if and I'm I don't honest. think
1: you can. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to come to the end of this discussion and say, "Well, that's it sorted." Then, uh, clearly, there were, that would be super counts, handy. or there weren't. Yeah, yeah it'll be super handy. But yeah. I'm far. I'm sorry, <laughs> we don't know yet. But spoiler alert: we're not going to be able to do no. that. Uh, in the fact, will if rage anything, on in yes, because I I really do believe that this yeah. is a spectrum. We have vocabulary yeah. that we try to. I and mean, archaeologists are very good at compartmentalizing things and saying, "Well, if it." doesn't fit rural it must be urban and if it doesn't fit town Mm. it must be countryside Mm. and that's not necessarily the case and I think one of the helpful um, developments in all of this is the study of hinterlands over the last generation and you
0: were doing work on Dublin you have a big book on yeah well I was uh,
1: involved with uh, in the discovery program with Margaret Murphy and and others Neil Brady um, who directed the project on looking at the Dublin and its medieval Mm. hinterland and something that that brought home to us was the that, that symbiotic nature, that, that connected connectedness between the town and the country and the fact that if one was going through hard times, so too was the other. Um, and so does m- a
0: town have to be independent? So would somewhere like Armagh have to be independent from the countryside to be considered a town?
1: I, I don't think so. And that that's one of the things I was recently rereading a really excellent essay by our former and late colleague Calmon Etchingham here Mm. in the Department of History, a really excellent essay on the concept of the of the monastic town. And he sort of points out um, a number of the activities in places like Mm. Armagh and Kells in Meath and uh, Kildare that were clearly rural or rural related. And he uses this as evidence to sort of dismiss them as towns and i did have a chance to talk to him about this because i, I it's something i you know have huge admiration for colman i did as a colleague and uh, it's a great loss to us uh, that he's no longer mm-hmm. with us but um, he, he was saying, you know, oh, well, the uh, the towns were involved in trading land and the the inhabitants of the towns uh, were involved in agriculture and they needed the produce of the uh, surrounding fields to survive, both in terms of their own food and in terms of uh, developing income. Um, But to me, that didn't discount those places from being towns. After all, most land now is bought and sold by people in towns. And in the later Middle Ages, the biggest landholders of land in the countryside were the monasteries Mm. in towns. Mm. St. Mary's in Dublin, by the time of the dissolution in the 16th century, owned something like 50,000 acres in the surrounding counties. That doesn't make that monastery rural because it owns and depends on... Fields um, and and I think this was where part of the, the the debate broke down a little bit because showing that places like those we've mentioned, those larger monastic or church settlements, yeah. Clonmacnoise, Kells, uh, Kildare, Armagh, etc., and you could add others to that list, that proving that there were rural-related activities or agricultural-related activities going on there, I think doesn't mean that they're not towns.
0: Yeah. Okay. Right. Will we then? Because I, I do want to kind of get into some other stuff, but he can Col- because you mentioned Coleman Etchingham, the late great Coleman Etchingham. Um, he also made a massive contribution to our understanding of monasteries.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So if yeah. we talk for a, a, just a minute about the monastic in the monastic towns, I think one of the things. That's a little bit of a misnomer, right, understanding Medieval Ireland. Yeah, uh, which has been long, long kind of debunked within uh, academia by people like um, you know, Richard Sharp and um Coman Etchingham and and many others. Um I actually have a bit of an essay on it. Ah. Um, go on to my academia edu page. No, anyway, um but just that the traditional understanding from a very long time ago was that we had monasteries uh, you know that it was the church in Ireland was dominated by monasteries and by like a monastic tradition and actually what we now know uh, is that it was more complicated than that that you had different types of ecclesiastical institutions and ecclesiastical settlements some would have been quite remote um, and enclosed and some would have been you know, some like Kildare were very much so a part of the community. Um, you the leader of the of many of these so-called monasteries actually n- weren't necessarily called an abbot or an abbess. Sometimes they were a bishop. Sometimes they were just referred to a princeps as a princeps or a, a leader or a coverba or that kind of thing. So they were very much so. They might have been, you know, the brother to the local king, very much so part of the general community and society and not how we might picture, you know, like Skellig Michael and, you know, remote um, monasteries and, you know, asceticism and, you know, people living a very simple life and that kind of thing. So somewhere like Clonmac Noise would have been a relatively bustling place, Mm -hmm. uh, probably throughout the Middle Ages. So kind of our understanding of what monastic even means. I think we now know that we, you know, we should, I suppose, be referring to these places in general more in terms of like churches or mm. ecclesiastical institutions or settlements. Um, but that's when when you refer to something as a monastic town, does that mean we have holy orders, you know? And yeah. I mean, it is monastic defined as, you know, having, you know, brethren, you know, beneath You know, an abbot, you know, in a again, you know, you know, Benedictine monks, uh, you know, and, you know, like what what do you know, really we had a we probably had a large lay population dependent on or, you know, living in proximity to these places like Clomac didn't we? And we need to kind of understand, uh, you know, kind of these churches within that context, that they weren't living outside of the community.
1: Right. And it was that population that uh, required resources and that supplied different expertise and so on. But I think your point is very well made. And in a way, at the beginning of, of, of the debate, which really comes. I mean, I think the term monastic town is probably used first by. Nicole Coron, maybe okay. in the late 70s or early 80s. And, and it's picked up by Charlie Doherty in a very important paper in the ni- in mid 1980s, 1985. Um, and then it has b- been taken on. And really, people focused on the word town in the term monastic town. And that was what the debate was about. But um, in, in, in typical uh, Etchingham style, um, not only did Colman question the term town, but he rightly turned focus back on the term, on the word monastic mm. as well. Um, and people had sort of let that slip that somehow slipped under the radar if you like the term monastic and you're completely right and he was right to point out that this is equally fraught with <laughs> difficulties. And and, you know, church site is probably a fairer term, a, a more neutral term to use, um in, in terms of just covering all of these places that that religion uh these buildings and settlements at which religion was a core and central part, whether that be prayer or worship or um uh, or activities with the local community uh, ecclesiastical of course is is good as well and we do have those initial certainly the initial uh, very remote, usually inaccessible church sites that were not for communities mm. looking after the sick and uh, marginalised in society. That wasn't their function. Their function was for people to take them to take themselves away from mm. society to devote themselves to a life of prayer and worship in uh, the betterment of themselves in the eyes of God. It wasn't to preach to a community or to look after yeah, or injured provide or for provide for anybody. Yeah. However, you start to get other church sites being built deliberately and explicitly on routeways. Clomac uh, yeah. Noise is a place we have, we've mentioned a few times yeah. but you know it really d- stands out. It, there yeah. it is on the banks of the River Shannon uh, you know that great north-south uh, artery of transport and communication uh, where it transects the Esquerida this great mm. glacial feature east-west across the country. People knew it. People came here uh, for prayer, for religion to be catered to. Yeah but to could you come after. into
0: somewhere like Clonmacnoise Noise to... Available service, or yeah. you know, yeah. like not did initially,
1: it, probably. Yeah. Although it may well have actually yeah. been a pre-Christian. Uh, like many of these Did places it, yeah. were pre-Christian yeah. centers. I mean, Kildare is another one. Yeah. These, these places that developed on the site of uh, either ritual centers or places where trade and um, and craft yeah, and economy you, were. Yeah, key. would
0: you ha- have had like market days and everything at, the, at places like absolutely noise market days? People were days coming in to yeah completely. trade and exchange. So they were
1: known for people, the equivalent of you know people in the at the front of the church coming down, sitting down with their bags of things mm. to buy and sell to people going to church mm-hmm. to pilgrims. Uh, uh, who increasingly came to these places, mm. as you well know, mm. and so um, yeah, you have the development. To me, it's no surprise that we have market crosses. These yeah. combine okay. those two yeah. strands. They're you know the cross is of course the most uh, obvious and enduring symbol of Christianity. Mm. You know on which Christ died. On the other hand, these are marketplaces. You have market crosses known from Clonmacnoise and Glendalough and Athen Rye and. Uh, Kells and Kilkenny, lots of other places. Um, they're markets. So that's the other hmm. function that develop alongside this. And that's a non ecclesiastical, non Christian function that is important for the definition of a town
0: so if we don't worry about the monastic part in the monastic towns debate <laughs> and we just okay. say the church just say church we say church, church, towns, towns. Ecclesiastical church towns ecclesiastical towns ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical towns I think yeah okay we just, oh yeah Michael Bodden and have have just decided to <laughs> yes. redefine right, everybody. redefine the name of the debate continue yes. to debate as you were <laughs> Yes,
1: <laughs> we're going to call it.
0: The, ecclesiastical the ecclesiastical debate,
1: debate. from now towns. on from um, this day forward
0: but so like Am I unfair to imagine them functioning a little bit, you know, as places that people could come? Were there ple- people living in these places, craftsmen or craftswomen, who weren't dependent on, you know, who weren't engaged in any kind of agricultural activity or, and they haven't hadn't been for generations, who were living off of the, you know, in. Yeah. Yes, I, I'd be fairly so, confident yeah.
1: that is. you know, we can't be 100% sure. But again, archaeological evidence would show that there are specialist areas within, say, Armagh, where um, bone workers had mm-hmm. their workshops and they specialized in making buttons and combs and handles out yeah. of bone and, and antler. And the archaeological evidence for that now. Yeah, lots of archaeological evidence for that. Clonmacnoise is another place in, in question. And you've uh, increasing evidence for leather working but not just a bit of leather working by somebody who decided to make themselves a pouch or a satchel or something. Somebody whose specialism was working with leather. So they were supplied yeah. with hides from the countryside. Well and even but,
0: like, sorry, like Clonfad, you know the excavations yeah, that were the done there. I mean it's probably 20 years ago now is it? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but in the fertile Kingdom, um, that just massive iron working industry.
1: Yeah, this is a in r- this church
0: r- at which in the historical record is barely mentioned, but the uh, kind of almost accidental, you know, one of these, you know, development archaeology, you know, where they're building yes. the road yes. um, and they have to do the excavations and they uncover this massive iron working mm-hmm. industry
1: yeah amazing these these handbells so you
0: had all these dudes working the, you know they're ironmongers or mm-hmm. whatever or craftsmen yeah um, I suppose they would have said they lived in the over the yeah
1: well what did you mean did I they live know. in a town did they live in a monastery <laughs> I'm not so arguing I'm
0: not arguing that Clomphat was a yeah I don't think, you know, if we if we
1: could take our time machine back to Clonfad or Mm. or any of the places we've mentioned um, and hover over it, Mm. uh, would we look out and say, oh, that's clearly a town Mm. or that's clearly a monastery? I think to you and me, even reasonably well read on the subject Mm. and so on, I think it would be very different from what we imagine. I could be wrong, yeah. And it's certainly very different from what your listeners would generally imagine as a town or an urban space, mm. because it has developed so much. You know, you ask some of your undergrad students, mm. uh, bring in an old hand uh, telephone, a landline, and ask them what it is. Some won't even know what it is. That thing, do you remember the thing? You hold it up to your it's ear. And it's got a big. Some of them have g-
0: difficulty with like books because we read even I books, do as well yeah, yeah. yeah books this thing but this like, like, artifact you've brought I in I know but, but yeah. in fairness I'm not, I'm the same you know like we, we're we reading stuff online it might be originally published in
1: you oh, yes, know hard course. copy form yeah. but
0: you're reading yeah. the same thing yeah. online that's just a few but years so you imagine I know, trying to I transport know. yourself yeah. back that, yeah. that far yeah. I just, it, can I just yeah, tell you I yeah. have
1: a student who was born in 2006 isn't that crazy oh like 2006 is just a few weeks ago yeah oh wow Yeah. that's finished I was yeah oh my god Okay.
0: Well I, a couple of things we're way out of time but uh, I will for any listeners who are who do know about the inverted commas monastic town debate Yeah sorry renamed, <laughs> um, uh, they might be screaming that we haven't mentioned the medieval authors especially guys in and women who were living in these ecclesiastical institutions in many cases we have references that, to them sorry using terms like "quiitas" or like a term that we right. would understand yes. or even oppodum, you yes. know t- yeah, terms yes. that we understand latin mm. terms that we understand to mean mm. s- some kind of an urban mm-hmm. you know a town or mm. something urban mm. um yes we do have those references. I'm not gonna get into now what I think of them. Yep. I mean my own yep. little thing is Kildare was a was a was a was a glorious city. Um, in Cogitosis's eyes, I firmly believe that. I don't think it was just metaphorical. I think he Kildare was the most impressive place that he knew of, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that in his eyes it was this glorious city, whether it was to anybody else or not, whether it was to Armagh or whether it was to anyone else in Ireland or anyone in, you know, the rest of kind of Western, what would have been termed Western Christendom at the time. But I do think that those authors, the terms that they were using, that they were, you know, imagining that these were really impressive places to them. So in comparison to the rest of the country, they were, you know, like cities and towns. But anyway, uh, we we don't have time to get into it, but I just wanted to put that out there Mm -hmm. that yes, the kind of literary sources you know these people within these places are sometimes using terms like as I said um, you know opodum or kiritas or whatever to describe the places that they're living um, but just to kind of finish up Michael should we care about the monastic town About to is it useful
1: yeah, I think it's useful, both in terms of the actual study of those places and our understanding of them, but also as an important activity that scholars and academics get up to. Um, and that is debating and discussing things, um, sometimes things that can be divisive and sometimes things that aren't resolved. Um, but that is an important part of the. Um, of community and of society. And I think it adds to community and society going forward. And if I may, just on that, neve I happened to, before I came in here this morning, pick mm. down off the shelf in my office a little booklet I mentioned earlier, actually, come on, Etchingham, the Irish monastic town. Is this a valid concept? Uh, from 2010, I think, the year isn't on the front of it. I thought this was my own copy of of this from uh, a few years ago. But when I opened it, just to remind myself of some of the things that Calmon had said, I see that it, in fact, was John Bradley's copy. And the late John Bradley, was also a former colleague of ours here in Maynooth, of course, and an- another person who contributed some very important observations and papers relating to the monastic town uh, and some archaeological and historical evidence uh, to support it, and then some useful, um, I suppose, interpretations of his own. But what I wanted to bring to your attention was the inscription by by Calmon to John, now both formerly, uh, both formerly and no longer with us, and and no longer sure. with us. Um, because this debate can become divisive and indeed in some uh, publications it was divisive but Colman says best wishes John we may not agree about this but I hope we can agree that it's all in the cause of real scholarly debate. I think that's wonderful and I'm going to treasure this copy.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael, for that. And as well, just to put out there again, you know, my eternal plea. There are, as I say, um, medieval historians are becoming uh, endangered. uh, And we... We need to have people who are able to guide us through and help us through understanding our past Uh, as Tiago, you know, is constantly telling me, you know, by decolonizing how we kind of approach the past and how we understand things. Uh, And without people who, you know, without new students, you know, without lecturers to teach the students, um, we can't have, you know, New people coming up and understanding Medieval Ireland all the better to help us understand ourselves today and how we, you know, our own identity and everything. So that's my, you know, my usual plea for.
1: Adopt a medievalist.
0: Yeah, adopt a medievalist. Patronise us, please. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. so thank you, Michael. Obviously, as with everyone. I could talk about all these topics for at least two hours. It seems cruel and unusual to cut them off even at this, you know, and it's probably, Tiago, we've gone on really long. But still, it, here it Monday, seems almost it? impossible uh, to cut these discussions down. Thank you for your time well, you and much, your Nate. knowledge and your expertise. It's been really enjoyable talking to you today. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And thank you again to Tiago for um, working with me on the podcast. Please, everybody, I hope you are enjoying the podcast and you enjoyed this episode. As usual, rate, review, like, subscribe and everything else. And um, we'll be back again in another two weeks time. Bye.